Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round, the podcast that always dresses for the occasion, even if the occasion requires a leather one-piece. The only thing I do is I do a formal intro where I ask you to introduce yourself. What do you want me to say? Why don't you say your name and what you did on Doctor Who? My name is John Bloomfield. I'm a costume designer. And my claim to fame is that I did two series of the Doctor Who series of Doctor Who with Tom Baker, uh, including uh, introducing his companion, Layla, Louise Jameson, in her sexy frock, which was a first for Doctor Who. Yes, and did you discuss that with her much? Because it, uh, it was obviously quite... Uh, n- nobody's dressed quite like that in Doctor Who before. <clears throat> uh, disgust is the wrong word. I think the relationship between a costume designer and an actress in that situation can get quite intimate, only in front of the mirror, I might add. <laughs> um, but it's all a question of trial and error, and um, will this work, won't that work, how much can I show, Just should I make this up, down, you know, all of that. And is it also reflecting the story that has been written. You can't just go and say, oh, give her a sexy bikini. It's got to work for the story. And, um, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, mix to that story because you've got the, the, the loincloths of the, the, the savages, which I guess sort of dictate themselves how they're going to be. And then the other side of Tom Baker's teeth, there are the technicians, uh, the Tesh. So where did, where did you come up with the idea for what they were? Well, I mean, the, the whole thing is um, dictated by the script. And the fact that the, 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 the savages were actually called the Sever Team, which is a contraction or a distortion of the word survey team, and the Tesh are the technicians, and they've all come in the same ship, so they've got to have the same basis. So you can see when, in what I've done the sort of um, square lines, it's not just a rough cloth, it's all quite cut, everything that the Seba team are wearing, the bits of leather. Uh, And um, my idea for the Tish was to base them on circuit boards. Now that dates me. In 1970s, circuit boards were the thing, Um, all based on green plastic and and lines of wires around. so that's what I tried to do, and I hope it shows in, this, in, in what you see on screen. And the director of that was Pennant Roberts. Do you remember Pennant? Pennant Roberts, yes, 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 um, yes. I mean, obviously, I, I, I met him in the normal course. You just have the production meetings, you have a chat. Uh, you've already read the script by the time you talk to the director. Um, he gives his ideas. You talk with the production designer, the person who's doing the sets and everything as well. So you all. Um, singing from the same hymn sheet as they say uh, and then you go and do it and actually it was quite as I remember we were quite pushed for time and so actually the first time that Penn and Roberts actually saw any of that stuff for um, the Sever team Louise Jameson and her savage crew was the first day of shooting at um, Ealing Studios mm. The diff- not, no, they're coming back to life, Eating Studios, actually. They nearly went out, but they're coming back. I always liked working there. Very good place to, to, to work. Uh, so that was nerve-wracking, just um, 
you think you've got it right or you hope you've got it right and you know the actress likes it and that's the most important thing because if she doesn't like it she's not going to be able to act um, but that, that sort of eight o'clock in the morning thing he's looking at it and you think oh my goodness <laughs> I better get my scissors out quick but it's fine he liked it and it worked um, and not long after you're back um, and this time you get to do what you didn't do first time round, which was designed for the Doctor. So I guess you had a closer, closer uh, encounter with Tom Baker on Talons of Wen Chiang than you would have done on Face of Evil. Yes, much more so, much more so. Um, and I, th I think we got along. Um, and how was the process? It didn't. Actually, in the end, I based it obviously on Sherlock Holmes. Um, um, but we started out with a much more general Victorian look. I, I started doing some drawings that were uh, that, and, and I felt it, this wasn't right, it needed to be more quirky. Um, and so I also did some drawings that looked a bit like Sherlock Holmes with the Deerstalker hat, which obviously is a straight pinch. Um, and, and he loved that, and instantly he loved that. Um, we went along and presented this with the director and thought, is this the way to go? And, and, and we did. Um, and that's what we did. Well, I'm going to Sherlock uh, Holmes. Uh, I'm going to ask you to repeat yourself because we, we talked earlier but it's a great story because of your wonderful design of the Peking homunculus Mr. Mr. Sin and the actor Deep Roy. <laughs> the actor Deep Roy, yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, not an easy thing to do, to make a person look like um, a wooden doll basically, a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, so we did have to take um, very careful um, face casts and all that to get the mask right. And I needed to obviously meet him well in advance to, to get all this worked out properly. So I rang him up and um, I lived in South London at the time. Um, and he said, oh, I can easily get to East Croydon, East Croydon Station. I said, OK, fine, I'll pick you up. And, uh, and then come back to my house and, we, and we'll do all the cast, casting and measurements that we need. Um, uh, and uh, we arranged a time and I said, oh, how, how will I know what you look like? And he said... John, you'll know what I look like. <laughs> you'll recognise me. And one of the things is you can't actually go into a thing like that with just one off. Um, so you can't use an original or find something hanging on a rail because you need a standby in case something happens or you might need one to have a stuntman and all of that. So you have to go and make, make everything for that. Uh, and obviously for Deep Roy, um, that that all had to be made because it had, it had it had such a specific look and obviously everything for Louise and all of those people everything was made everything was made but when you're doing a straightforward um, Victorian number like that then you you can go and um, uh, and rent stuff there are amazing um, hire houses and uh, as we speak now and this is January the twentieth two thousand sixteen it has just been announced but I probably shouldn't tell you this that Angels, the costumiers, this huge costume house, the largest costume house in the world, is going to get a corporate BAFTA at this year's um, 
at this year's BAFTA Awards. Um, by the time you're broadcasting this, yes, it'll be out anyway. Yeah. Um, a corporate BAFTA for their services to the British film industry, and much deserved, I must say. They're a fantastic company, Angels, and they bring in huge amount of work into this country simply because they're there with their store of millions of costumes that people like me can go and surf through the rails and choose. And uh, I mean, I'm now retired, but in many, many, many times I have taken huge trucks into Angels, filled them up and taken them off all around Europe to Italy, to Spain, to France, to Germany, to Hungary, to the Czech Republic. Um, they, they generate a lot of foreign income for this country from Asia, so their BAFTA, their corporate BAFTA, the services of the British film industry much deserved. Well, what, what about your services to the industry, John? <laughs> when, 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 did they, uh, when, did, when did it all begin? What was your uh, inspiration to design? Was it all, did you always have an eye to be designing for the entertainment industry, or how did that happen? Um, well, I, I, I chose the obvious route here, and I, I did a law degree at university. I mean, <laughs> well, what else would you do? Um, uh, in my spare time, or to actually to raise a bit of money, I was at Birmingham University. I worked at Birmingham Repertory Theatre as a stagehand. Um, and this was way back in 1960, yes, 1960. Um, and I, I was always good at art, although I, I went to a school that was never considered that art might be a career. You know, if you weren't going to be an academic, you were no good. And so I did go to university, I did do my law. Um, um, but I, I always had a soft spot for being an artist and working at the theatre, I realised that there was another side to life. You know, painting scenery, designing scenery, uh, making props, which is what I first started doing. Um, uh, or, or just actually being involved. I actually loved the whole atmosphere of the, of the theatre. And, and the, the killer blow for me, the thing that set me off from just selling houses, being a solicitor, was um, uh, this gorgeous lady who came down from London to be the Arts Council design student. Uh, this is now 2016, so that's 56 years ago, and we are still together. And she was a designer, a beautiful, beautiful de um, designer. And um, uh, she said, you can do this. <laughs> so I had a very private tuition. I didn't need to go to the Slade or to the Central School of Art or Wimbledon School of Art to learn my trade. I had a perfect, perfect tutor who had all the credentials and all the academic background to help me. Um, so she was able to um, uh, nurture my raw ability and say, do this, do that, do that, and the rest is history. Um, and what, as you said, because some of your theatre credits it has things like yes prop props by or just a straightforward designer so when 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 was it that costume particularly took your fancy well i was um working at guildford by this time now i'd, I'd been around i'd worked up in manchester i'd worked in the lake district i'd worked in hull and also reps all around the, around the country uh but in 1969 we had a baby uh, i mean you know she was by then, so Anne was working anything like as much, so I was in charge. We were living in South London, and I had got a job as the assistant designer because obviously I'd done it quite a bit by then uh, at Guildford. Guildford, um, um, the every the what's it called? Yvonne, Yvonne, oh, no. Yvonne Arnett Theatre in Guildford, which was newly opened, so it was quite a prestigious little job. Um, and I was, I think I was being paid £18 a week as the assistant designer and living in Mitchell. 
Um, and I was very happy, but a bit, bit poor. Even back in 1968, £18 a week wasn't a fortune. And it was just the time that um, BBC Two was opening up and also colour television. And the BBC advertised for costume designers. They wanted costume designers. And I read in the stage, I read this advert, and they were offer, offering twice what I was earning, and I thought, I could do that. I had been involved with, um, as a designer, a uh, set designer is what I was doing at that, at that stage. Um, uh, I had been involved a bit with the costumes, really just saying, you know, I think that one ought to be pink, or this one ought to be blue, <laughs> much more than... But, but, you know, actually standing there and saying, yes, let's do this, and being involved with some fittings, and let's get this right this way, and I think this is how it should be. Um, and so I had done some drawings, so I applied, went along for an, uh, the interview, amazingly got the job, uh, as, a, as a full-blown designer at the BBC, uh, I thought, this is terrific. And then I realised they'd taken on 50 more in that whole period. <laughs> so it wasn't quite so, um, um, so unique as I, uh, as, I, as I thought. And started. And almost the first thing I got asked to do, uh, within about nine months of being there at the BBC, <coughs> um, was The Six Wives of Henry VIII with Keith Michel. Um, and I won my BAFTA for that. Yes. I had a personal exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum. So, so and my career has been downhill ever since. <laughs> well, it's a it's a television great. Um, and uh, yes, Keith Michelle has just uh, he just, just died, passed away. Just died, um, but yes, you've done it. You've done. I noticed you've done it. Was I mean, was the allocation based on on anything other than chance? Because you seem to do a lot of period. You did a Hunchback of Notre Dame, Man in the Iron Mask. No, no, it, 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 it's uh, that's that's what I'm good at. Um, you know, very few people are going to ask me to, to do a, a high fashion modern piece. Um, um, I have done a bit of just a recent, not recently, but um, uh, in the 2000s, I have done a couple of the modern pieces, and it's a lot harder work than you think. I, mm. I think I'll stick with the 18th century or, <laughs> or medieval, or even pre-medieval, or even just make it up. It's better, <laughs> easier. And you enjoy the research part of, yes, of the very much so. Very much so. Um, I, I mean, I've always been interested in history, so that's no mystery to me. Um, and something that I've learned in the history of costumes is how everything evolves and everything goes in cycles. And, and, and I love that sort of delving. I like going to museums and I love pulling through all the bits and trying to find out what went with what. And, uh, yes, that, that, that interests me a lot. And. Often when I talk to people who came through the ranks of the BBC, there is a uh, nostalgia is the wrong word, but there's a there's a there's a there's a belief that the system as it exists now is 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 not conducive to the sort of creativity and creative development of those of you who it, were staff it was, members. It was extraordinary. Um, there was a group. Um, you know, I said there were fifty. I think. By the time we set up all the offices and everything for the department, there were like 60 of us, and it was really quite a high-powered little group. Um, and you did slightly feed off each other. Um, it's not entirely true, because, of course, every, there's only ever one costume designer on the show, so you're not living in each other's pockets, but we did share offices and talk. And, and what I realised after I'd left, I stayed there nine years, what I realised after I'd left was just how protected we were. You know, we never had to worry about money or where the staff was coming from or all that. 
Uh, not that we were allowed to spend what we like. I'm talking about personally. You knew at the end of the month you get you get your wages. Which is, you know, once you left the BBC, nothing. I've never had a day's holiday pay or sick pay since. No. Uh, or pension. No. <laughs> um, uh, which is you know what 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 they what they did they did supply. So in that way, it, it was very comfort for comforting, um, but also high powered and very competitive and very competitive, so that in itself was quite good. Um, what happens now is that, as in the film industry, um, everybody is a freelance. There is nobody employed um, full-time as a costume designer. Uh, I think anywhere in England <laughs> or in Britain, um, probably even throughout the world by now. Um, everybody is a freelance and you, you just have to keep working the system, working all the networking to, um, to, to try and find the next job. So you're always dependent on, um, on your last job. You know, does somebody know you? Does somebody know what you can do? Does somebody, somebody ever, is it, are they ever going to ring you? And now um, email you, of course. Um, for me, I found that I'm talking about emailing now. That quite difficult. Um, I, I, I started to feel very old-fashioned. I'm, I'm an old man, and everything was done with um, on Skype and talking. So you, did, you never had any of that long-distance protection, which in the old days, when I was doing Conan the Barbarian or that sort of thing, that you could um, have a a phone, quick phone conversation with a director in Los Angeles and they wouldn't expect to see anything for two weeks. Now, you know, you talk on the phone, they want to see what you're doing at that moment. And I've had this conversation with um, young, much younger designers who are working now and they're saying, God, it's hell. You have no time to think. You have no time to think. You have no time to yourself. You're always available to all, to all the people who want to know. And that is a major change. I don't know if it's going to be for the good or for the bad. I, I, I can't tell. There's still fantastic work coming out, so obviously people are, are making it making it do. When we had the Hollywood costume exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum last year, or just just the year before, um, <clears throat> I did a I got involved in doing a day's seminar for people who wanted to come and talk about how the job was done. Uh, and there were three of us on the stage talking, and I, I realised when it was when I walked on with the other people, I thought, hang on, there's a 30-year-old, there's a 50-year-old, and there's a 70-year-old on the stage. I, <laughs> I get the point they're trying to make. Um, and it did come over quite, quite how, how easy it had been for um, me to get my own point of view over 40 years ago, much easier than it is now, where you, 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 you're, you're absolutely... You, you, your first thought is what matters. You don't have time to think. Uh, and I think that will probably change. I think people will realise that that's it's, it's not good. But as I say, some people are doing it wonderfully. I mean, there's some fantastic stuff. I'm so jealous looking at The Revenant now, <coughs> which is certainly going to win the Best Actor Oscar this year, I think. Um, uh, I would have loved to have done that film right up my street. <laughs> I'm, I'm good with bits of old fur and leather. <laughs> well, it... I mean, one way of contrasting what you did is, of course, you did Henry VIII on TV, and then you did the film, which was directed by Warris the Same, who directed the yeah. first yeah. ever episode of Doctor Who. Yes. You know. Yes. Um, so, I mean, looking at that, what were the differences then between working at the BBC and doing it as a BBC series and, and doing it on film? 
Um, well, I mean, all the things that I just explained. Um, you mentioned the, just the, the BBC workshop and all the facilities that were, for, were provided. We had um, on tap, you had to book them and make certain you've got enough and everything, but there were people, you had assistance paid by the BBC, you had um, uh, what they call dressers who are who people who help run the show for you, you know, get it, put all the clothes out, get it all done, get it there on time, get it clean, get it ready for the next shot. Uh, they're all there, employed by the BBC, you don't have to go looking for them. Um, they had a workroom with at least six tailors and 25 seamstresses on tap, available as long as it wasn't full up for somebody else. And you had, so you had, to, you had to think in advance and, uh, and, and get your space booked. Uh, all of that, um, you didn't have to worry about the transport, you didn't have to worry about how stuff was going to get there, you didn't have to worry about anything like that. It was all, that was all, there was a department in the BBC that would sort all that out. Once you're out in the film world, none of that exists. What you get uh, as a film costume designer is a script, a talk, and a negotiated sum of money. You don't get anything else. And when I say a negotiated sum of money, you have to come up with a budget. How much do I need? How many people do I need? How many people do I need working with me in pre-production? How many cutters do I need? How many tailors do I need? How many dyers and breaking down ages? I mean, that's the most important thing. It's very easy to make a costume look new. To make a costume look realistically old is a nightmare and very, very expensive. I'd much rather do a reproduction of a Savile Row suit than I would a broken old tramp in Victorian London. It's a lot cheaper. Because <laughs> to get it's so easy to make breaking down an old costume look look stupid and look odd. Um, so the, the first thing you have to do, you instantly, and this is why I sort of jokingly said to you at the beginning of this that um, you know, I did the obvious thing and did a law degree, actually, in working out what you've got to do, I find it very useful. You know, I'm not afraid of numbers, I'm not afraid of figures, I can work it all out. Um, uh, so you do have to come up with an absolute scheme of just what you're going to do. It's not just sitting there doing the drawings. As you're doing the drawing, each line you put on that piece of paper has a consequence. Uh, a consequence means money. So you, you've got to work out exactly how many teams, how many people you'll need on the day, each day, how many people you'll need in the background who don't ever come on the set who are doing all the preparation, how many trucks you'll need, how many, uh, all of that, you've got, you get the picture. And, and most time, and by that I mean 90% of the time, you've got to find a premises to work. You know, the company, com film companies exist to make a film, and I mean a film. The days of um, big studios isn't very much gone. I have done a couple of big studio Hollywood pictures um, where you, you, know, you can find your resources, by, I mean, by that I mean somewhere to work, uh, on the back lot of Universal Studios or Warner Brothers Studios, but that's very rare now. Usually, you know, you're, <coughs> you're working in, in some city that's not involved with the film industry, you're, you're out on location, you've got to, but you've got to have your workers to hand. So the first thing you're looking for is a derelict factory or somewhere that you can take over, you can you can use for your for your for, for your setup, and you do a you know, six months or a year's contract to rent that. And that's the first thing you do, and you've got to take that out of your money. Um, so I you know <laughs> I'm probably 
when I arrive in some strange town or even in southern Los Angeles, if it's not a big studio picture, you know, I'm becoming, I'm spending most of my time with real estate agents trying to find somewhere to work. It's not a simple job. No, no, no. Well, and, and you know, you worked on some major movies. I mean, thinking of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which sort of seemed to come out of nowhere and then didn't go away. Indeed. I mean, it was a huge thing. At the well, time, were you aware that that, that, that was this sort of a roller coaster? Um, no. Um, I was when Kevin <coughs> said we were in London because um, we basically shot it at Shepherd and Studios and then, then around and, um, on location. Um, said, uh, come on, you guys, I want you to come and see the, uh, the, the premiere of my movie. And that was Dances with Wolves. And we suddenly realised, oh my God, this guy's quite important. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. and there was a bit of a backlash against that against, uh, against him, but, but Robin Hood did, um, did, did take off. And I think particularly, um, think of the, um, <coughs> the duelling that went on, I mean that literally and metaphorically, between Alan Rickman and Kevin Costner, um, who sadly died this week. Ah, Alan Rickman, I mean. <laughs> Not Kevin, I think it was Kevin Costner's birthday recently. Um, I, I actually thought when we were making it, I thought this is, this is a, I, my very first thing was, this is a great script, it's funny, it's, it, 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 it presses all the right buttons, um, and it certainly was no way historically accurate, but that's not the point of it. Um, one of the problems I had is I came fairly late onto the project, you know, um, because um, I came fairly late onto the project. I, I went for an interview with um, Kevin Reynolds, the director, um, a long time before we started shooting to talk about it. And he was very insistent. He wanted it absolutely real. He wanted an authentic look. He wanted the whole thing. And I said, I don't even do that with this script. Uh, and I didn't get the job. Oh. Uh, he gave it to somebody who tried to do that. And um, one of the actors said to me when I did come on it, he said they were trying to make a line of muddy choir boys. You know, it, it was just all mud and, uh, and, and no shape and no sex appeal, no nothing. You know, it was, it was 13th century. 13th century muck and, and, and it didn't have any and one of the things you're making a movie you've got to think about who your audience is you've got to appeal to a modern audience it didn't have any appeal to the modern audiences and, and so I, I, within I only had like two and a half weeks before we started shooting wow. to start and there was there was nothing um, um, uh, but it, it wasn't complicated cutting, we were able to do it, it was just a question of getting enough people in to do it, and we did, and we did, and it was fine. Um, and I, 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 had, I had been previously working on something that was of this same period, and a film that, that uh, didn't happen, didn't get shot, but I had done quite a lot of the research, which was quite useful. It was <laughs> well, so it's, that saved me like about three weeks. Um, and um, it's, uh, Robin Hood is the only film where I have kept constantly had a whole production uh, wardrobe going um, 
right the way through the shooting period because we were, you know, I had to really study the shooting schedule very carefully and say, right, we need this first and then we need that and then we need that and we don't need that until week 10, you know, so wow. don't just make it. It was, it was a nightmare in that way, but it worked. Well, you must have done a, you, you, you certainly pleased them because they, you came back for Waterworld. Which... I came back to Waterworld the two, with the two of them, yes, with Kevin Reynolds and, uh, and actually in between I did Rapa Nui, which was a bizarre thing. Um, it was, um, basically it was Romeo and Juliet set on Easter Island um, and didn't do anything in this country at all, but it was a big hit in Europe and they loved it in Japan and I actually saw it in Mexico and, it, and people were cheering in their arse. <laughs> anyway, that's by the bar. <laughs> um, that's showbiz. <laughs> that's showbiz, absolutely, yeah. But, but Waterworld was, um, I mean, that, that over, over shot, didn't it? That was... uh, well, I don't know how much I want to say. But okay. <laughs> um, Waterworld, uh, um, was actually, I think, in many ways, a flawed masterpiece. Uh, it did have problems with it, um, and it was very expensive. When you think of what you were trying, what they were trying to recreate there, and shoot the whole thing out on water, that was all done for real. They built that place out in the Pacific Ocean, uh, floating up and down. We did have tsunamis. We did have all of that. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and, and so it, it cost money, but I think that there were a lot more of studio politics going on there. I don't think it cost as much as it said. And it has never, ever stopped making money as DVDs. It's well covered its costs. Do not believe a word when people say Waterworld was a financial disaster. It was not. Uh, okay, um, what, what about Churchill's people? A different, a different source of uh, <laughs> production. Oh my God, that's going back. Yeah, because yeah. that, that, that was at the time viewed as... Uh, mm. As, as perhaps too ambitious for, for, mm. for television. Too ambitious for television, yes, I, 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 I've heard that. Um, all I'm going to say was that, as far as I was concerned, I was so busy <laughs> on that, I never had time to think about anything like that. Um, it probably was. I think it was a mistake to make it so studio-bound. I think they would have been much better to have used much more location. I think they'd have found it much more flexible. And, um, but that's, that, that's my opinion. But, um, well, so what about stuff that you would like to lead me to? Then, what have, what have been, What's been the work that you take the greatest pride in or that you think your contribution to was something that... Well, I, I'm quite pleased that... Um, I mean, I've just been watching Poldark mm. <laughs> and I did the original two series of Poldarks and, and people say, oh, I loved yours, it's much better. I've actually looked at mine I think, actually, this one's pretty good. <laughs> the one that's out now, I think it's pretty good. Um, but that was great fun. It was the, that was really the first time I did, started doing serious location work. Um, uh, we would go down to Cornwall at sort of six weeks at a time uh, to do... It's quite difficult to do that, that sort of thing because you... You have a you work in series of six episodes, uh, but you start off by going down on location to do um, all the stuff that's outdoors. But you do it for all six episodes, so you've got to have everything there day one for all of that. That's quite difficult, but good fun. That was the first time I really got into thinking. Hmm, I quite like location. I prefer it to standing around in the studio. Uh, so, so that, so, uh, so I, I, I'm pleased that that's now being talked about. I quite enjoy that. Um, I, I think 
And I'm very pleased with the Mummy movies. Mm. I think the Mummy movies were a huge success. They made an absolute fortune. I think Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz and Arnold Vosloo and Odette Fair, who were the big leads as far as I was concerned, in it were amazing. I think Stephen Summers wrote and directed brilliantly. You know, I think I said about Robin Hood, they, they just got the pace of the script, the, uh, the idea of the script, that just, it was just funny, but had enough of history in it and, um, to work. And, and I think The Mummy did exactly the same thing. It had the same sort of, um, it, it just pushed all the buttons for a modern audience, which basically what it's about, you know, it's yeah. turning, as who uh, said, turning light into money and money into light. <laughs> <laughs> That you, you mentioned that you know you had that big success with Henry VIII, the first, and you did Doctor Who after that. Yeah, that's just yeah. the nature of being at the BBC. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, I mean, it's just how it came up. Um, did you see that as a bit of a come down? No, God no, God no. I mean, I, I did, um, I did play school after I did Doctor Who, so um, that's how it was. You know, you were on the staff, and what was um, they had. As I said, there were 60 of us. You know, that's a lot of people hanging around. So if you weren't actually allocated onto a show that was taking up your 100% of your time at the time, um, then you, were, you worked on what they called the CDU, the Costume Design Unit, which meant that you turned up for work in the morning and you were available. So you were allocated to the, the CDU, the Costume Design Unit. Uh, which meant you turned up for work every day and the costume design unit office would be open from nine till six every day. Um, and you would get, like, you know, the newsreader who turned up and had just spilt egg down his tie. You'd have to go and sort that out. Or, um, or play school wanted somebody else through the big window or the round window. You know, you had to find something for that. Or uh, I remember once getting a call from a programme called Record Breakers, which is basically the... Guinness Book of Records saying they wanted a, a jacket to fit the fattest man ever in the world by three o'clock, you know. <laughs> Pardon, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, because the resources the BBC had, you could, you could do things like that. You know, I said, okay, give me the dimensions, and you were suddenly making a, a jacket for a 145 inch waist, you know. I can't remember what it was now, but a long time ago. But that sort of thing. Um, so I don't in any way see doing Doctor Who after after Six Flags of Henry VIII as a as a come down at all. Um, no, no, I mean that was part of the excitement, and you knew damn well that uh, you know you'd be doing record breakers one week, and then Doctor Who, and then after that you'd be doing the Play of the Month, and um, you know with starry actors and, and all the glitz. That's good, and and you got paid every month. Yeah. Don't knock it. No, no, certainly not. As a freelancer, I can. Uh, well, look. Um, what about now? What about what about you? You mentioned that you. I'm retired. So w w when when did you? Retire? I won't be back. Uh, and, um, so what do you, what do you fill your time with? Uh, I've got grandchildren. They're hard work. They only think I'm any good when they see old episodes. Actually, my my youngest grandson, who's now ten. He, every time the mummy or the scorpion king comes, granddad, granddad, come on, watch, 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 not again. Um, so that takes up time. And um, I'm also involved with NADFAS, which is the National Association of Decorative and Fine Arts Society. And we have a local group uh, on which I'm on the committee. And I organize trips 
for people it tends to be all mostly retired people and we and I do eight a year um, taking them out to places that I find and I organize them ne next the next one we're going to Windsor Castle having a guided tour and uh, lunch and a coach and all that and you have to organize all of that and sell tickets obviously for it um, and it's a local group. I live in a village in Surrey, um, and, and we have 300 members. And there's only about 300 people in the village, I wow. think. But I mean, they do come from a bit around, um, which is is extraordinary. And, and I, I cost all my the trips I do out on uh, having 40 people in a coach, and, and so you buy the 40 tickets, and therefore I can work out how much I'm going to charge. Um, but uh, you know, we go to lots of places uh, um, we've been down to Ports Portsmouth Historic Boats Harbour um, and, um, but recently uh, we've just been to the National Portrait Gallery uh, we've, uh, we've done the National Gallery obviously we do that uh, we've done the, the Globe Theatre day out and seeing something there and um, several theatre trips every year I organise a, a, a trip to Glyndebourne um, and I, I spend my time looking through all the brochures and thinking what's coming up, you know, and trying to and, and get it and, and do it. That actually takes up more time than I thought it would. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm gardening. <laughs> well, well, before the last two questions that I ask everybody, it's, it's, I mean, those you very kindly showed me some of your design pictures, mm -hmm. uh, and you can see those online because when I did an image search for you online, some of those show up. Um, so it's, I just think it's interesting for you to talk about the fact that you didn't draw a lot of them. You, you talk, talk me through your process of making making. No, no, pictures. no. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. No, 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 no. no. I, I draw them. I developed a, a method of doing it based on collage. Um, I'm very interested in getting the textures right, and, and just once, I mean, right back in. Uh, late 60s um, and it was the time when the Sunday Times and the Observer were doing very nice colour magazines um, in just the right quality um, with nice photographs in them and cutting them up and, and using them in I don't mean cutting up the shapes I mean cutting up the bits of coloured background and using them as texture and, and, and rolling up all the paper so it gets slightly crinkled then flattening it out and sticking it onto my drawing um, and I don't quite know why it started, but, but it, it gave to me, I, I found I could get more depth into it than I could do with my own painting. Uh, so, so it's not a question of the drawing, it's actually just getting the... And, and I quite like the sort of happy accident that happens. You pick up a little bit and you suddenly find some little bit of change of colour in the corner. God, that's really nice. Um, and, and whenever I'm working on a production, I, I always have... Uh, fabric painters and dyers um, working with me along with what we call ages so I set up a sort of paint dye workshop um, so you can get that sort of um, uh, you, you can get that sort of change of colour you're not I don't like to be dependent on what a modern fabric you can, you can buy in the shop. That's what I'm really saying. I really started that with the six wives of Henry VIII because, you know, to get some of those Renaissance fabrics, you know, it was just impossible. So we started making <coughs> we started making our own method of making the fabrics, and that started from the, my method of doing the drawing. 
which was this collage technique. And we did the same sort of collage technique into the into the fabrics themselves. So that's nice. That's fascinating. Yes, I like that. Um, so the final two um, questions. Up. First, uh, you've kindly given me your time. So what is your charity that you would like to benefit from this conversation? Oh goodness, I didn't even know that was going to come up. Um, well, I will tell you, I have just done a charity lecture through my the NADFAS group that I'm just talking about. Um, uh, and I did a lecture, a, a, a PowerPoint presentation in a hall with, with pretty much most, uh, about 180 people turned up. Um, uh, in in the village hall. <laughs> Um, and we raised 1,800, I think actually 1,900 pounds. Just gone, it's just been paid two weeks ago, just doing it just, just after Christmas. Um, to the Shooting Stars Hospice, which is a hospice for children who have, it's more than just learning difficulties, who have um, physical and learning difficulties. Um, and the final one it's, uh, is, um, we nominally convened to talk about Doctor Who, so uh, what is your message to the listening Doctor Who fans? Um, keep watching, oh no, that's the wrong programme. Um, uh, I'm, I'm astonished that it's still going, and I'm pleased it's still going. Um, and, um, but, I mean, I, 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 several times people have said to me, oh, I think the Talons of Ray Chang was the best Doctor Who ever. Uh, and on my heart, I'm going to say, yes, I agree with that. But I look at what's going on now and I think, God, it's amazing. It's fantastic. And, and I'm not quite sure whether I wish that um, we had the technical resources that they have now or not, or whether it was nicer when it was all cut out and bits of... I remember making that rat for, for uh, the talents of the, the, the rat in the sewers for the talents of Wei Chiang uh, in my bedroom with my son out of fur fabric and, and cane that you wouldn't do that now. But, uh, and it's much better now. Or is it? Is it quite nice having a man in a suit? I don't know. I don't know. But um, just in, in, enjoy it and enjoy the privilege of having the BBC because it is the best. I've worked all over the world and I go to you know, South America or Europe or anywhere and you turn on television and you think, oh my goodness, where's the BBC? They are really good, don't lose them. Uh, music's worried and I never thought um, somebody with your list of credits would uh, agree for a second to partake in this silly project of mine. So, John Bluefield, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Thanks to John, BAFTA winner, doing a Who's Round, and what a very nice fellow. Um, and that was recorded, sorry about the quality of places, but that was recorded at a place where no electronic equipment was allowed. So I had to sort of uh, stow the recording equipment under my hat, um, and we had to sort of look very innocent whenever anybody walked past bearing a tray of drinks. Anyway, I hope it was all right. John's charity is shootingstarchase.org.uk. 
Uh, the charity has merged, I think, since uh, since John nominated it. But it's the same hospice, Shooting Star Chase, Shooting Star Chase, all one word, .org. .uk, uh, and it is, it's a hospice and a charity for babies, children and young people with life-limiting conditions and their families. It's been featured on this before, so if you could, or whatever you can spare, if everybody listening to this spared just a little bit of money, it would make quite a respectable total to go to a good cause, which is what this podcast is all about, and there'll be another one of these at the same time next week. Till then, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Don't give the company your time for free, Joe. Some of us are grateful to have a job at all, you know. My dad's been on work ten years. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. We're on Merseyside, and the year is 1991. There's not going to be anything worth doing here. Unusual concern. What sort of ship is it? I thought it was a cargo ship at first, but there are some very odd touches. I wonder if perhaps it's military. Hello? We're not ready to receive. We're shut down for the night. Is the blood crystal in place? Yes, Mum. Then all we need is blood. Blumenek. Look at the furnace. Some kind of crystal, looks like. But it's on fire. One can hardly launch a ship without it. Doctor Who. The Blood Furnace. Now you're interested. Big Finish. We love stories.